the current events seem to be dominated, especially this week, with the normal wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and those various aspects. But the thing that seems to be center stage this week relates to the promise that God gave concerning His provision for those who would desire to know Him, an understanding that He was God, and a warning to those who upon knowing Him would not glorify Him as God and would not be thankful unto Him. And He said He would then turn them over to a reprobate mind. We certainly see the effects of that reprobate mind in our society today. And the way he identifies it was, first of all, then there would be lesbianism and homosexuality. That would be the first sign that the people had been turned over to a reprobate mind. And we have seen that certainly amplified uh, in the last several years and especially uh, during this past week. So we truly know that we are in the end times. And uh, the documentation that we are receiving by way of our newscasts uh, remind us of that continually. In our investigation into Bible prophecy, and we've titled the study, uh, Understanding Current Events in Light of Bible Prophecy, we have looked at that stage in heaven and seen what God has revealed to us concerning what is going to take place among the Christians at the appointed hour in that Christ is going to come and uh, the dead in Christ are going to be raised first and then we that are alive at that point uh, will be changed, transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to be like Him and we will go with Him, and in our study we have seen that the events that follow our rapture into heaven is the judgment seat of Christ, identified as the Bema seat as well, and uh, then the marriage of the Lamb. While there is a second drama that is taking place here upon the earth, and we investigated that, that stage set in heaven, and then said we would move and shift our focus to the stage that is set here on earth. And these two chapters in the book of Revelation are the transition from that which we are going to experience as the raptured, born-again children of God to become the bride of Christ and to be with Him while the tribulation is occurring here uh, upon the earth. Uh, chapters... Uh, two and three illustrate for us in Revelation of uh, the church age and now chapters three and four of that transition where we are going to shift our focus and look here. There's a great deal in this and uh, I do not propose to try to cover all the nuances of what is set forth in here but for us to look at the the uh, key and developments that are going to uh, be occurring and uh, and deal with those as we 
then look at the events of the tribulation. Chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we have said, is an introduction. And it's not the revelation of St. John the Divine, as you'll find in your King James Bible. Uh, in the first place, St. St. James was not divine, and his sainthood is no different than yours and mine. We're considered saints because of the holiness of God. It is not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's so stated right in the beginning of that first chapter. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have an introduction there where we have some characterizations of Christ as he is depicted. And then from chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3 document for us the period of the church age, and then beginning with four and then with five, we make a transition, and then from chapter six through chapter 19, we deal with that scene and that drama that's going to occur here upon the earth. In chapter one, verse 19, the apostle John is instructed to write the things which he has seen, and then write the things which are present, and then to write the things which are going to be hereafter. So John is told, first of all, to write the things that he has seen. That would cover pretty much of what we have in chapter 1. And then to write the things that are, that deals with the present church age at the time that John received this revelation, and it would be chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And then to write the things that are hereafter. And so that begins with chapter 4 and goes through the rest of the book of Revelation. Now during our study of this series, Understanding Bible Prophecy in the Light of Current Events, uh, rather understanding current events in the light of Bible prophecy, we've seen that phrase, the things which are. And we've seen that that refers to the description of the church age, which is underway by the time John receives this. The church age had been underway by uh, some period of time in that he wrote this in 95 AD and uh, in 30 AD, uh, it began. So for 65 years, uh, the church had been in this period of administration where Christians or the church age uh, formed the administration for uh, the representation of Christ here upon the earth. And that is uh, diagrammed for us then in the seven churches. Here in chapter 4 then that we read in your hearing this morning, we began this third section uh, of study, the things which are hereafter. So understand that what we are seeing in Revelation chapter 4 on uh, began not at the time John was writing, but after the church age, after the rapture of the church. And this, of course, is the largest section of the prophecy that we have in the New Testament. 
and we could actually divide it into three parts. Chapter 4 through chapter 19, chapter 20, and then chapters 21 and 22. All relating to the things that are going to be after the church age. The same Greek word, metatoto, meaning after these things, is used once in Revelation 1.19, and it's used twice in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So chapters 4 through 19 covers what is identified in Scripture as the 70th week of Daniel. When we study uh, end times and when we study the book of Revelation, we have to harmonize that with what is found in the Old Testament where Daniel documents uh, the events of end times as it was revealed to him while he was uh, uh, in the Babylonian captivity, and he penned that for us. And so we're going to be making some reference uh, to what is identified as the 70th week of Daniel. We recognize that each week in Daniel is identified as a year. So he's identifying the 70th week is the last period of Bible prophecy that he revealed, and that's the seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. We recognize as we read through Revelation that we do not have any reference by the word church once we leave the third chapter of the book of Revelation. Until we get to the 19th chapter, there is no reference to the church, and there in the ninth chapter is a reference to the bride of Christ, which is otherwise identified in Scripture as uh, uh, being uh, the uh, church, and so it does not appear again until the 19th chapter. And then... Uh, Uh, Following the tribulation then was the second advent of Christ with Christ coming and then we have uh, the judgments that are going to occur during that period of time and that's followed then by the millennial reign, the thousand year millennial reign of Christ and then the closing of that introduces us to eternity and we're just not given a lot of information about what's going on uh, eternally, uh, once this heaven and this earth, uh, are destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth are brought about. Now, it's important for us to remember that God has divided time into various segments of time. And as we study the scripture, it's clearly identified that there are seven distinct administrations or dispensational ages, uh, in which God has appointed uh, various ones to be the administrator for the revelation that he gives them. And each administration is responsible for uh, the information that they have and will be accountable uh, for the instructions that God provides uh, in that period of time. So following uh, the rapture of the church into heaven, we have a completion of the Jewish administration. The Jews' administration began at Mount Sinai during the Exodus. 
And while Daniel was in captivity in uh, the Babylonian captivity and received prophecy information, uh, we are told that they were going to be allowed, the Jews were going to be allowed after they had been taken away into captivity back to their land and they would have another 490 years uh, in which they will be the administrators. And so when we look at the 490 year period, uh, Daniel broke it into uh, three distinct periods. There would be 49 years. He was specific. There would be 49 years of trouble. And then on the 50th year, peace would come. And as we look at the scripture and compare that to history, we see that it took 49 years for them to retake the land and uh, settle in it. And during that 49 uh, years, there were raiding parties of Palestinians. They were the old Palestinians, those who had moved into uh, the land while the Jews were in exile. And so they there were war parties that were going on all the time to try to keep the Jews from getting resettled in the land. It took 49 years. And at the end of the 49th year, they were at peace. And it's, that's fascinating as God gave them various rituals and days and feasts that they were to observe that uh, every 50th year was to be the year of Jubilee. Following uh, the, the 49th year, uh, they were to celebrate the peace and the grace and the provision of God. And so on the 50th year, after they had resettled, they celebrate the Jubilee. All the property reverts back in the year of Jubilee. It reverts back to its original owner. And they had been displaced, but now on the, uh, the 50th year uh, of their return, the Jubilee, they are back in their own territory. They have their homes. Uh, and they are settled in the land. And then at 483 years, you'll remember the Messiah, they were going to kill the Messiah. And we document that exactly to the day of 483 years from the day Artaxerxes signed the decree to allow them to go back from the then Persian Empire because the, the, uh, Persians had overthrown uh, with the dying of Alexander, uh, the uh, power of the Greek Empire uh, fell apart, and we have the Medes and the Persians then uh, dominating, and uh, the Artaxerxes signed a decree to allow the children of Israel to go back to their own land. 483 years later to the day then, the Messiah was killed. And then there's a final seven-year period, but what we understand now is that it didn't follow chronologically. They were taken out of their administration. The church was put in, and with the church being put in, the church does its work as the administrators of the kingdom work. So when we're taken out, they finish their final seven years, and that's what we find recorded then in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19, the final seven years 
of the administrative responsibility on the part of the children of Israel. So Revelation chapters 4 and 5 introduce the events which are going to take place here upon the earth. So we're going to work our way through those two chapters today and then we'll be in a position in the weeks that follow to look at prophecy concerning uh, three primary areas that uh, we look at in Bible prophecy, the political aspect, the economic aspect, and uh, as we follow through uh, the political and the economic, uh, we see that uh, certainly being shaped up. But then the religious aspect, uh, the church is gone. Uh, the witness of the Jews becomes challenged and there will be a one world government, there will be a one world economy, and there will be a one world religion. Those are the three arenas uh, that we're going to be seeing the book of Revelation and along with the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the other harmony of the Old Testament prophets. Let's look at chapter 4. It begins with John writing, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in the heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Come up hither. is a command to the apostle John to come up into heaven so that he could see and so that he could understand the things that were going to transpire so that he might be able to record that and document that for those of us that are going to depart and for those that are going to be left behind. The statement, come up hither, is considered by many of us to be a direct reference to the call of the church as well up into heaven. I gave you a note in your uh, your outline of that uh, from uh, Henry uh, Ironside uh, from his book titled Lectures on Revelation. Uh, sometimes I'll throw in a, a testimony of someone else so it's not just me giving you an interpretation but some that uh, may agree. I sometimes will even give you one that doesn't agree and then try to discredit that uh, by the word itself. But H.A. Ironside in his uh, book on lectures of Revelation said in speaking uh, the statement come up hither uh, is speaking of the rapture and uh, the Apostle John is a symbol of that, of the church being called up here, which would be the last reference then uh, that we have in that uh, that background. Now, what John sees is a throne. He said, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set up in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, 
uh, in sight like unto an emerald. An interesting phraseology that is used there. Uh, this is not rainbow week. Uh, the, they stole the rainbow from Christians. And uh, it's time that we took it back. And yet it's difficult to take it back among Christians because most Christians know that, yeah, it was a sign that was given at the end of the flood that God would not destroy the earth by water again. And uh, so the rainbow we recognize is a sign of that. But there is a weakness in the teaching of the doctrine of the rainbow so that the vast majority of Christians do not understand that the rainbow was chosen by God to reflect his character. The seven attributes that identify the character of God are represented by the seven colors that are in the rainbow. So all the imitations, the uh, different rainbow coalitions and rainbow representations that we find today, uh, they certainly don't understand that aspect of it, and they have assigned various colors. I was uh, I was amused to find that the original uh, flag, rainbow flag that was adopted uh, by the homosexual community, uh, had the color pink in it. But they revised it and dropped the color pink because the material was hard to find. So you can recognize there's not a great emphasis upon symbolism by the colors that are there. And while uh, the designer did assign uh, various meanings to the colors, they have no association historically with literary use and symbolism of colors as we find it in Scripture. But there is a rainbow that is pictured here uh, upon uh, over the throne. And uh, we need to look a little bit at what he sets forth here. He says, uh, first of all, that the throne is set in heaven, and that gets John's attention. Uh, and then he says... In verse 3, when heavenly things are spoken of, the description is beyond uh, uh, the common speech. And we, if we don't understand the meaning of the symbols, then we miss uh, the impact of what is being set forth here. Uh, He refers to Jasper. Uh, Jasper is, is found in varying colors. There's not just one color of jasper, but it contains many brilliant colors, and uh, it's the first stone that was in the, the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. Now, uh, when God established the ritual among the Jews to teach them the the doctrines that we learn in the New Testament, and to learn of the doctrine of Christ, uh, when, when God set out to reveal those things, He gave them instructions, uh, for various rituals and for various observances and even for some of the garments, especially of the high priest and 
of the others that functioned in priestly uh, uh, function. And the high priest was to wear a uh, a breastplate and uh, on that breastplate were 12 stones that represented, each stone represented one of the tribes of Israel. And it was a pretty good system from what we can understand uh, for knowing God's direction and God's will. It had a Urim and a Thummim on the shoulders and those were stones and uh, the breastplate uh, was worn by the high priest and he could ask for uh, instruction God might reveal to him uh, through a prophet or else or otherwise that he was to go into battle. And uh, uh, am I to go into battle, yes or no? Well, the Urim and the Thummim were a yes and no stone. And if it were yes, the one light, one would light up, the stone would light up. And if it were no, then the other stone would light up. I could get a pretty good market for those today, uh, if, if they were legitimate, but they're not marketable as far as I understand, uh, or no. But then there were 12 stones, each stone representing one of the tribes. And all right, you said we're to go to battle. What tribes am I to take? And their stone would light up. And so when the high priest had decisions to make, he had unique access to that. The first stone was the jasper. And the then in addition to uh, the jasper, we had the sardine. And that stone was the last stone in the breastplate. So there's significance in this statement that is given um, as God uh, remembers then the identification of his administrators as his or his stewards, the nation of Israel, and uh, that's identified with the jasper and the sardine. But then over that is a rainbow which contains all of the seven colors that identify the seven attributes of God. But this rainbow is said to appear as emerald. So in in the breakdown of the language, uh, what we see is the dominant color of that rainbow over the throne uh, of God was green. That is the attribute that identifies the eternalness of God. So while all the attributes of God are visible, the dominant one is uh, His eternalness, and it's that eternalness that is in focus in these chapters 6 through 19 in the prepping for that before we finally get to eternity in the 22nd chapter. So we have that scene with with one sitting on the throne, and uh, as he sits upon the throne, there is a, a dominance of the identification of the jasper and the sardine that relates then to Israel. Israel is the focus in that which is being dealt with, and the eternalness, eternity itself, is the objective as that is revealed to us. Now, in addition to the scene there with one on the throne and the description of that. We have then in verse 4, and round about the throne 
were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. They were clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. This is an important passage as uh, relative to the pre-tribulation rapture because this shows the church in heaven. Let me explain that. The four and twenty elders sitting upon four and twenty seats. Some would uh, explain that these uh, are uh, perhaps angels that are seated there. But I would suggest to you that this represents the church. Now, how do we arrive at the identification of the 24 saints sitting upon the seat, seats that are there as the church? Well, the church is, is described in scripture as being a priesthood. The number 24 is significant here because in the priesthood of Israel, there were 24 courses. Now, a course was a shift. They, they remember one entire tribe uh, of Israel uh, were, uh, the Levites were committed to uh, the temple worship and uh, uh, the ritual of the law and all that was involved in it. And so they were, when they went in to possess the land, they were not given territory. Each of the other tribes went in and selected their territory, but the Levite, the tribe of Levi was prohibited from doing that because God had a work for them to do. And so he gave them some cities. But then they, in 24 different shifts, were appointed to spend their time in Jerusalem uh, taking care of the, the sacrifices and the ritual and all that was involved. So the entire tribe was divided into 24 courses or 24 shifts of priests. So we see then that this relates to the priesthood but there is identification that identifies it as the church uh, instead of uh, the uh, nation Israel itself. Uh, he said, as he makes this reference then, that there are 24 seats, there were 24 elders sitting on the seats. They had crowns of gold, and the crowns are only... Uh, awarded to the church, and the church is the only period of time in which every believer is a priest. And so it's, it's logical to recognize these 24 elders sitting there. Remember, when we go through the judgment seat, we're going to get four crowns based on our uh, development of the techniques uh, that are related to the Christian life and we are to cast those crowns before uh, the feet of Christ as a tribute to Him and the doctrine of grace. And uh, so we'll see these 24 elders represent the entire church age and all the Christians that are involved. And 
when we see this, we recognize they've already, the church has already received its reward at this point, uh, and the tribulation is just beginning to unfold here upon the earth. In verse 5 of chapter 4, it says, Out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The tone of this scene is somber. It's going to be a period of judgment and of tribulation instead of peace and tranquility as it relates to what's going to break out here upon the earth. Now it's significant that uh, from the throne these lightnings and thunderings and voices uh, those are words that are, are terms that are identified uh, always with judgment and then the seven lamps of fire which are identified as the seven attributes of God being displayed. People want to say oh there's no such thing as hell there's not going to be any judgment of that nature God's love. Well, that's only one of seven attributes that he has. And he is righteous and his righteousness demands that there be a payment of the penalty. He paid the penalty for those who will, but those who want then will have to pay it themselves. Then there is added in verses 6, uh, and seven, and before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes. That's a poor translation of the Greek word, and I don't know why the King James has translated it that way. It's not four beasts, it's four living creatures. The word beast carries with it, even in Scripture, a negative connotation. These are not negative. There are four living creatures before, uh, in the midst of the throne and round about the throne then. These four uh, living creatures that are full of eyes before and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now the sea of glass harmonizes uh, with in the tabernacle and uh, uh, the laver that Moses was was to uh, to build, and then uh, in Solomon's temple the bronze sea. Uh, we'll be talking about those things um, in the appropriate time. Uh, they identify the establishment of holiness uh, and that it, there is a stability of that as well. Now, the four living creatures are fascinating uh, in that they, um, some have said, well, they're angels uh, and, and we don't, I don't know exactly what uh, one might classify them as except it's very uh, evident that they stand for the four attributes of Christ. Uh, the Not relative to his characteristics, but his function. The lion is representative of king. The calf is actually the calf of an ox and is representative of service. Uh, 
the face of a man is representative of humanity and the flying eagle is an ancient sign of deity. So we see the lion representing the role of Christ as king, the calf representing his role as our servant in dying for our sins and in providing grace for us. The face of a man represents his humanity and the flying eagle his deity. The four Gospels introduce each one of these aspects. Matthew presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus in his servant role. Luke presents Jesus as a man, and John presents Jesus as God. There are no conflicts or contradictions between them. There is a harmony between them, for Jesus was the servant king, Jesus was the God-man. And those four aspects are dealt with specifically then and individually in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as they harmonize to show us the totality of Christ. These four living creatures represent those four aspects of Christ. He was the king. He came and paid our debt and provided uh, the service of salvation for us. He had to be man in order to do that, and yet he was God who set aside the function of his deity in order that he might do that. So the scripture says, And the four living creatures had each of them six wings about him, they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that set upon the throne, who liveth forever and ever. They are joined then by the 24 elders that I have suggested to you represent the church. The four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So worship occurs in this scene as we're setting up to evaluate what's going to happen in that seven years that follows. We find uh, in verse 11 then the statement, Thou hast created all things, and they were created for thy pleasure. The focus of worship uh, centers then upon the fact of God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. And uh, that's going to be occurring following our rapture, our judgment seat evaluation, and our marriage to the Lamb. We shift gears a little bit then as we move toward uh, or into the fifth chapter 
uh, in this period of transition uh, because there is introduced to us a scene that unfolds there uh, while this worship of the Creator is taking place. John said, I saw in the right hand of him that set up on the throne a book, a book written within and without on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, the book identified here is not what we picture in the way of a book uh, that's bound in the way we have it. It's a scroll. And it is written on the front and on the back, and it's rolled up. Now, this is a seven-sealed scroll. In the legal documentation at that time, at the time in which this book of Revelation was written, and especially among the Jews, uh, a will, a last testament, was written in this manner, and uh, it was rolled up, and then seven seals were put on uh, that that will. Uh, this is actually the last testament and will of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see it uh, un. I started to say unfold, maybe unrolled uh, would be more descriptive of it, but. What we have is some being written on it and then a seal. And then other being written on it and rolled up and then a seal. And then other so that as you break the seals on it, you break one seal and you can read so much. And then you break the second seal and you can read so much. And each seal reveals additional writing. So there are seven segments that are identified here and we are introduced to them here in the fifth chapter. He says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written uh, and on the back side and sealed with seven seals. Now the book was in the right hand of the one that sat on the throne. This is the father that's upon the throne. We don't have much in the way of description uh, the Bible says no man has seen the Father at any time, but the, but the Son has revealed Him and declared Him to us. Look with me then at chapter 5 at verse 2. <clears throat> John said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break the seals, to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John says, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. There's no further mention of this strong angel. There's a number of angels that are introduced through the book of Revelation. Uh, but this is the only mention we have. 
concerning this strong angel. Uh, but we, we find the angel is the one that, uh, delivers, uh, this book. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, is there anybody worthy to open the book? And John says, I wept very much because there was no man on the earth, in heaven on the earth, or under the earth that could open the book. And as I was weeping, then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. The line of the tribe of Judah prevailed. He's able to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. It's Christ alone that has the authority and the ability to open the book. The Lion of the tribe of Judah uh, is a reference uh, back to Genesis chapter 49 uh, verses 8 through 11 where we have Judah, uh, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, thy hand shall be at the neck of thine enemies, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet and Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people the binding, uh, the block, excuse me, the binding his feet upon the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garment in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. That identifying the tribe of Judah and out of the tribe of Judah, then Christ would come, uh, in some of the Old Testament, uh, poetic language that is rendered there. It's a reference to Christ who is also identified then as the root of David. He's the lion from that tribe of Judah, but he is the root and offspring of David uh, and identifies the line through which the Messiah uh, was to come. The references to Christ then are clear that he is the one who is able to take the scroll to break its seals and to reveal what we find in the book. John said he's told that he hath prevailed. That word means conquered, that he has conquered. And uh, of course he did that on the cross when his words... Uh, uh, at the end of the crucifixion time was, it is finished, or the debt is paid in full. He prevailed in that hour to have the authority then to open the book and reveal to us what we're going to be seeing as we uh, examine the context of this passage. In verses 6 and 7, John writes, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, and he tells us 
which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. A lamb that had been slain. There are a number of portrayals of Christ through the book of Revelation. Uh, and we see the portrayal here as a lamb. But in just a few moments we see uh, in the same context the idea of a lion, not just a lamb. They're one and the same here as the description has been given. Now the seven horns point to the the fullness of authority uh, that is given, seven being the sacred number of completion, and identifies the full authority. When Jesus started to ascend into heaven, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power, that word is all authority, is given to me in heaven and in earth. And then we have the identification of the seven spirits, which identified then the seven attributes uh, of God, those being his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his righteousness, his eternalness, his wisdom, his omnipresence, and his love. Those are the seven attributes and all other descriptions uh, uh, or adjectives can be fit into one of those seven uh, characteristics of God. So as a result of the sacrifice of the Lamb, He rules as King and is qualified to open the scroll. John sees then in the midst of the throne the four living creatures and the 24 elders and this Lamb appears as having been Slain, The seven horns symbolize uh, his attributes, but they go beyond that to focus. The word horn identifies authority uh, in government and identifies the role that Christ is going to pray, play. So the, the lamb's qualifications are identified here. He was sacrificed for man's sin. He has authority then to overcome the foe, and he enjoys all wisdom and intelligence. All the seven attributes of God are manifest in him. Now in verse 8, then we have the worship of the creature and of the elders. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, and a golden and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and every tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. Notice then the golden vials are identified as having the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. A new song 
but it's the same old, old story. The worthiness of the Lamb is identified for us as a result of his work on the cross that was slain and upon the fact that we have been redeemed. Now, there is discussion among Bible students as to uh, the uh, reference that we have here, uh, who's doing the singing, uh, are the angels, uh, are, are, is that the 24 uh, elders, the church host itself? Uh, we will find uh, that the reference, there's, there's a couple of comments uh, that need our attention. Uh, the fact that we're redeemed by the blood. We don't have any reference that angels were ever redeemed by blood. And first of all, the blood is identification of humanity and angels uh, are a different form of life altogether. And so some would say, but if if the angels are singing and the four living creatures are singing and the 24 elders are singing, then how does that figure in if they were not redeemed? Well, there's a translation problem that I think helps clear that up uh, where it doesn't say we, the, the older manuscripts, the oldest uh, Greek manuscripts we have, doesn't say we were redeemed by the blood, but they were redeemed by the blood. Uh, uh, seems to be uh, certainly a more accurate uh, presentation thou hast redeemed us not us to our God by thy blood but thou hast redeemed them to our God because we have the angels uh, quite a number of angels uh, that are gathered there I one of my uh, teachings is that as I study scripture when the number of church age believers equals the number of fallen angels that will be the end of the church age. So if you can figure out how many angels there are and divide that by a third and uh, get the one-third, the total number, then if some way or other you could figure out who the genuine believers are from the day of Pentecost till now, then you might have some idea of where we are. But those uh, uh, certainly are parameters that uh, are prohibitive for us to know. But how many angels there might truly be. He said, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and of the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, uh, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I say, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor 
and glory and blessing. The sevenfold doxology concerning the provision and the power and the operation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every creature, heaven, earth, subterranean, in the middle of the sea, is included in this praise. Both the Father and the Son are the recipients of the praise. We have in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, this statement, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of all things in heaven and in earth and things that are under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so that worship and praise is directed to both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The song lists seven things that the Lamb receives as a result of being slain. The word power is the word dunaman. It's natural inherent power and uh, is identified as that which is available to Christians who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. We have the dunamis power, and yeah, that word dunaman is the word from which we get dynamite. It's natural inherent power. And then the word riches, pluton, identifies moral uh, material, material possessions. The word wisdom here is sophian. That means an ability to understand the application of knowledge to experience. The, the word strength here is uh, iskus. Uh, it identifies an ability. The word honor is timon, and it identifies a recognition of value. The word glory, doxen, identifies honor that results from a good opinion based upon character. And then the word blessing, logian, from which we get the word eulogy, uh, is to be well spoken of in some kind of public forum. In verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen. The word Amen means let it be so and charge the saying of it to my account. It's when you agree with something to the point that you're willing to take the responsibility for it having been said. I call it the Christian credit card because you're saying charge it to me. That was a good statement. Charge it to me. And so these four living creatures that represent the four aspects of Christ then uh, give the resounding Amen. And the four and twenty elders bowed down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. So the church prostrates themselves before the throne and casts their throne, their crowns there uh, before the Lord. Now the last phrase, Him that liveth forever and ever, um, that's not found in some of the manuscripts, in the older manuscripts. That phrase apparently has been added in, but the truth of it is documented in another scripture uh, as well. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, <clears throat> we've had an introduction. In chapters 2 and 3, 
we have a prophetic view of the entire church age, which we yet continue in the last period of that, right now in the Laodicean period of the church age. Chapters 2 and 3 lay that out. Now chapters 4 and 5 have set for us the stage so that we can make that transition. And we're going to do that by the opening of next week. We're going to look at the seven seal scroll. And we'll see as each seal is broken what happens here upon the earth. Uh, we'll get through six seals and uh, then we're going to find introduce a number of other uh, directions to go. Not only the seven seal scroll, but we're going to have seven trumpets. And then we're going to have <clears throat> seven bowls of wrath. And we will, through them, be able to see what God is going to do here upon the earth. <clears throat> and by our note taking, it could begin soon. Because when the rapture occurs, those events take place in heaven. The stage here on earth is immediately activated. And uh, we'll discuss that as we open the seven seal scroll to understand what God would have us to be doing today with an understanding of what is about to transpire upon this earth and perhaps the motivation for us to be good sojourners, good ambassadors for Christ, good servants, good stewards, good husbandmen in the vineyard today. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.